0: Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and we are back for another round of February 1992. I do this maybe once per season when I look at the charts and there's just too many songs that I want to listen to and too many songs I want to talk about. And in this case, it was February. It was just stuffed full of songs that I thought were either good or worthwhile in some way today. I'm joined by Dusty Resky and Ellen Osborne of the band Rocket Ship. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having us, Will.
0: Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Let's talk about the band a little bit. Can you tell me about Rocket Ship?
1: Yeah, well, I started it in, I guess, the, the mid-90s in uh, Sacramento in my early 20s, Our former band had broken up, and uh, this was me kind of exploring my creativity on my own terms. I didn't have any more bounds. I didn't have to consider the other bandmates who were quite talented. And then it just kind of kept going from there. I guess it was always a recording project mostly. I just think about the studio as the instrument I'm playing mostly. And I play guitar and sing and kind of play keyboards and the, the like as well but it's always just in the trying to make something cool happen out of the speakers and um, I just kind of never stopped I haven't been uh, incredibly prolific but you know I have almost a 100 songs or something over the years and just keep keep doing it
0: all right yeah and Ellen can you talk a little bit about when you joined up with Rock Chip
2: yeah I joined the band maybe Coming on seven years ago, our mutual friend Adam, who played drums at various points throughout the years, recommended me to Dusty as a potential singer and met up, and I have the right kind of voice for the project, so...
0: Is this just a studio project?
1: We played live. I mean, we toured the United States in back in the 90s and went to Japan. And we played around Portland a couple of years ago when we got this new band together. But it is definitely secondary to my interest in playing the, in the studio. So I imagine that we'll do something live pretty soon, but probably after we get this new record out.
0: Do you have a current record you're working on?
1: Yeah. Maybe a double album.
0: Oh, wow. Exciting. You said you started your band in the mid-90s or so. 93. Were you 93, there you go. Were you listening to modern rock at the time? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, I guess I'd have to kind of see who was putting out records in 92 to really know what I was into. But uh, certainly, you know, the Cocteau Twins and uh, My Bloody Valentine. And I mean, I was probably I don't know if the Sundays were maybe 89.
0: Yeah, Sundays, I think their second album, maybe is coming out around this time
1: oh right so and i mean i guess it was like i was into tiger trap there from sacramento pavement was really happening there's this really vibrant underground you know sonic youth was really relevant so yeah it was uh there's there's a lot of interesting music happening for
2: sure
0: ellen were you listening to modern rock or college rock music back in the early 90s
2: well, yes and no. I, at the age of 14, moved with my family from Reno, Nevada to Seattle, Washington, which is a really awkward moment to move from Reno, Nevada to Seattle, Washington. Um, I wouldn't recommend it if anybody's planning to go back in time and make life choices, unless they were far more advanced in the modern rock world than I was. I moved to Seattle and was sort of thrown into this very different social realm with kids at school who listened to, you know, Mudhoney and Nirvana and all of these other bands that I had never heard of. So at this juncture in time, I was trying to essentially change my musical worldview in order to be able to correspond with the kids that I thought were cool at school sure. and uh, <laughs> with mixed success. But I think the bands that ended up resonating a lot with me were Jane's Addiction and Nirvana to a certain extent. I feel like I never, despite being in that milieu at that time, didn't really jump on the Nirvana train like a lot of folks did. I liked Alice in Chains, too. (laughs) But, you know, going back to that stuff now, like it's the sort of thing where I would not listen to it at all, but I heard an Alice in Chains song on the radio the other day, and they've got some great harmonies, and there are some cool things happening there, actually, that I can respect my 14-year-old self for listening to that back in the day. (laughs) Sure, yeah.
0: All right, well, let's get into it. Let's hear some songs. We're going to hear first from an artist named Matthew Sweet. Going all the way back to 1982, a teenage Matthew Sweet caught a sparsely attended R.E.M. show in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I guess as you could do back then, he he walked up to Michael Stipe and he gave him a tape of some songs he'd been working on. And long story short, Matthew Sweet was encouraged to move down to Athens, Georgia for college And he ended up playing in Michael's sister's band Mm. called OOK. And he also did a a short-lived side project with Michael Stipe. But I think they only recorded like two or three songs total. In 1986, Sweet released his first solo album. Uh, It didn't sell very well. Took three years for a follow-up, which also didn't sell very well. And at that point, his record label lost interest, and his marriage fell apart, and things were not looking great. But he turned it around, and in 1991, he released his album, Girlfriend, originally titled Nothing Lasts. And this is considered, I think, by most people to be his best album. It's also his best-selling album. Hmm. We're going to hear the title track. Here it is, Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend.
1: Somebody, I hear you need somebody to love. Well,
2: I want to love somebody. I hear you looking for someone to love. Cause you need.
1: Gosh, I'm I'm not a big fan of that track for a couple reasons.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear it. what are the what are the reasons.
1: Well, the first thing that sticks out for me is I think that although maybe that was it was a style of sampling at the time where you could you know a, a la Paul's boutique or what have you, take someone else's work and then throw it into your song. The need somebody to love. Am I wrong? That's a Jefferson Airplane refrain and so there's a like a lack of originality that first hits me as dissonant you know and unoriginal it's kind of cool in the original song (laughs) you know but here in this context like i I feel like he just leaned on very talented rock musicians that came before him to deliver the sentiment that he is hoping to deliver to this his lady friend
2: i think i have Fewer issues than Dusty. However, Matthew Sweet is one of those artists, and this record in particular, that people have tried to run by me knowing that I'm a huge pop fan. And while I see good bones in there, and I really appreciate that this really unapologetically pop song was put forth on the charts at this point, there's something about his like vocal delivery. It just doesn't land for me. I want to like it more than I do.
1: Yeah.
0: I think I know what you mean. So first of all, I've never heard a second album, but I've heard his first album. And I think this is a huge step up from that. This, to me, feels more substantive, and I like it considerably better. And I've listened to this album a lot. But yes, there's something about his voice that... To me, in the many times I've listened to it, I always ask myself, is this Christian rock? (laughs) I don't mean to be disparaging of people's faith or or people who like Christian rock, but I think many listeners might know what I mean here. There's just something uh, maybe a little too wholesome (laughs) about his voice and delivery, but... I do like it a lot, and I think this is one of my favorite tracks on the album. But there is that little something, I think, that always holds me back here from really loving it. So I do appreciate the guitar solo, though. I like guitar solos from time to time, and this one is a little heavier and a little cooler than what you might hear in a typical power pop song.
1: Agreed. I do appreciate a good solo, for sure. I'm not opposed to a solo, but I feel like it's just kind of some running around on the scales. There's never a moment where I feel like there's any emotion really coming out of the lead. Already by this time there people were using click tracks. They didn't have computers or what have you, but they were they were keeping the band all on time. And I feel like there's a session musician vibe to this whole thing. Like it doesn't really sound like a rock band that believes in this thing that he needs a girlfriend or I don't even know what the message is actually, but you you should wanna <laughs> be his girlfriend or, or whatever it is there's a contrivance to it all that it's it's very much like this is a single this is a good single and let's record this really good single and maybe people will buy it so I kind of never believe in I never buy into it I always wanted to like Ellen was saying like it was this one of these things where I thought this is the kind of thing that I should like you know and I never really did back in the, the day you know and like I thought that album artwork was really cool and The label was pushing it and there was the video and everything, but it keeps like this one vibe the whole time and never really veers from it or whatever. It's very safe. And so, yeah, I got to give it a thumbs down. Okay. (laughs) I I wish I liked it more. I I always wanted to like that guy.
0: Yeah, well, you know what, I uh, I appreciate your honesty. I think sometimes on this show, we just all go, it's pretty good, it's pretty good, and, and every song gets a, a pretty good. One thing I did want to mention though is in terms of the message of this song, it's easy to, to miss because it's right there at the end, but after spending the entire song shouting out to somebody to be his girlfriend, he does end the song with a, I'm never gonna set you free, which is kind of a creepy note to end things on. For sure. Well, Matthew Sweet, after this album, he's, he's been a pretty busy guy. He's put out quite a number of albums since then. Uh, he's also done a lot of side projects. In the mid-1990s, Matthew Sweet formed a band called Ming-T with Susanna Hoffs from the Bengals and wow. comedian Mike Myers. And they adopted <laughs> 60s personas. So Ma- Matthew Sweet was Sid Belvedere. Suzanne Hoff's was Gillian Shagwell, and Mike Myers went by Austin Powers. And Mike Myers was encouraged by his wife to turn the idea into a screenplay. And <laughs> Susanna Hoff's <laughs> husband at the time, Jay Roach, directed that film, Austin Powers International Man mm. of Mystery.
1: It's very funny.
0: Wow. <laughs> uh, okay, well let's move on. The next band we're gonna hear from is called the KLF. And We've heard from the KLF before on this show, but we heard from them under a different name. Back in, it was either 88 or 89, there was a track by a band called the Time Lords, and the song was called Doctor in the Tardis. And it's ridiculous, and it also became a number one hit in the UK. So uh, at some point they changed their name from the Time Lords to the KLF, which I think stands for the Copyright Liberation Front. And these two guys, King Boy D and Rock Man Rock, after they hit number one in the UK with Doctor and the Tardis, they wrote a book called The Manual, How to Have a Number One Hit the Easy Way. And an Austrian band called Edelweiss (laughs) read the book, they wrote a song called Bring Me Edelweiss, and that song sold two million copies and hit number one in six different countries. (laughs) and it also charted on the modern rock charts back in 1989 and it's utterly ridiculous and i'm just going to play a really quick clip of it
1: they're ripping off abba it's a rip-off of (laughs) abba (laughs) Oh yeah, God. and I think
0: that's basically oh. what the instructions in the book said. It, like the laws around sampling were not quite established the way they are now. And so yeah. it was a little easier to just steal somebody's song, rip it off, and, uh, you know, <laughs> make, make it into a hit. So in 1990, the KLF released what might be the first ambient house album. It's called Chill Out. In 1991, mm-hmm. they released an album called The White Room. And uh, it Mm. includes the track 3AM Eternal, which also hit number one in the UK and hit number five Mm. in the US on the Hot 100, which is amazing because I've never heard the song. It was a big hit over here, but somehow I completely missed out on it. We're gonna hear another song that was on that album, White Room, but it was released in a slightly different version as a single, and it is called Justified and Ancient Stand by the Jams. For unknown reasons, this version features country legend Tammy Wynette on
1: vocals. She doesn't know why either.
0: No, I don't think she does. I think I think when they contacted her, she thought it was a joke. She had not had a song on the Hot 100 since I believe 1969. So <laughs> this was uh, yeah, it was out of the blue and pretty strange. But the song justified an ancient. It reached number 11 in the U.S on the Hot 100. It reached number two in the UK. Yeah, and so this song hit number 21 on the modern rock charts in February of 1992. So here it is, Justified and Ancient.
1: That was on the top 100, huh?
2: Yeah, apparently.
1: Yeah, wow.
2: It was the one song that I had thoughts about when when Dusty showed me what we might be listening to for the show. Because I had never heard it when it came out. But maybe a decade ago, I was reading a biography about Tammy Wynette where they sort of went into the backstory of how this happened. She had a history of substance abuse at this point and a husband manager with a uh, long history that would continue of making very self-interested business decisions for her. This one actually sort of panned out for her, but still gets in my head. Just the ridiculousness of Tammy Wynette singing. And they're driving ice cream right <laughs> Not that I'm doing her justice there, but it's just the lyrics are completely nonsensical. I cannot imagine them approaching this hallowed figure of country in her mansion in Tennessee and having her walk into the sound booth and sing these nonsensical lyrics. I don't know. It's just such a bizarre scenario to imagine.
1: The band got it really high, right?
2: (laughs) I don't know about that. I didn't say anything about
1: that. I'm not saying you (laughs) did I guess maybe I heard it from someone else in my band.
2: (laughs) You're just uh, trying to justify the existence of justified and ancient there, I think. Well, I think, right,
1: that was the acid house period. So that was the idea. You would listen to that and you'd do a bunch of drugs and want to hear Tammy Wynette to a house beat.
0: Yeah. I can understand why people would want to dance to it in a club setting, but it's hard for me really to have an opinion other than I don't think I want to listen to the song.
1: It's amazing, like, looking back, like, why why would anybody really be super into this song? I mean, there's all kinds of problems. I mean, I think just foundationally as a song you know you would never like sit down on the piano and play it the melodies doesn't hardly exist the chords are, are uninteresting the lyrics are not anything that I can relate to exactly like I think well especially if they wrote a book on like you know how to have a hit it just seems really yeah. it seems kind of cynical. To me, this kind of seems like all of these forces coming together to make some money, and it worked. But artistically, there's nothing happening of interest to me, you know. And I would really like to dance to this song. I mean, is anybody going to claim that today? Like, is this a one that people come back to? Like today, you can go to the club and they're going to be breaking out with the Tammy Wynette KLF track, you know? No, it's like it. It was just a flash in the pan. You know?
0: Yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit about how the career went after this, and you may have some more thoughts about that. So in February of 1992, this is right when we're talking about, at the Brit Awards, the KLF performed on stage, and they ended the performance by whipping out an automatic rifle and firing blanks over the head of the crowd. And then an announcer announced that KLF have left the music industry, Shortly after that, they deleted their back catalog, putting all of their songs out of print and making it impossible for them to earn royalties. <laughs> and, and then three years later, they did a couple art projects. The first one was they started a prize for the worst artist of the year and gave 40,000 pounds as a prize. <laughs> And they actually awarded it to the same person that won the Turner Prize for Best Artist of the Year. And then they shot a short documentary where they set one million pounds of their own money
1: on fire. Oh, fools. Oh, my God.
0: I think their statement was probably lost on a lot of people. I think it caused some outrage from people thinking that there were better uses for that money. But it's it's a bold statement regardless, I, you know, whatever whatever their intention might be,
1: yeah.
0: not too many people would do something like that.
1: No, I wouldn't.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that was pretty much it. They Not long after the song, it was just like, our music career is done, boom, we're out of here, you can't listen to our songs anymore, and all the money we've earned, burn it up.
1: Gosh, I don't know what to make of that you know like i i don't know what they're getting at exactly were they just so embarrassed by this song <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're like we can't accept money for this song we don't deserve it yeah i'm sure it had something to do with how they perceived the music industry and some kind of comment on art well let's keep going we got two more bands so we're going to listen to a band called the wonder stuff they were formed in 1986 and they're led by singer Miles Hunt, who is a nephew of the keyboard player from ELO. This band did respectably well with their first two albums. They cracked the top 40 in the UK six times, and they landed on the modern rock charts three times before this. But 1991 was really their year. They released what's probably their best album, Never Loved Elvis, which went to number three in the UK and spawned three top 20 hits in the UK. And they also released a single called Dizzy, which was featuring comedian Vic Reeves of Vic and Bob. And that song went to number one in the UK. So shortly before this, they were really blowing up and having a lot of success. We're gonna hear a song called Welcome to the Cheap Seats, which went to number 27 on the Modern Rock Charts and it features singer Kirsty McCall. So I guess be on the listen out for her. Here we go, Welcome to the Cheap Seats.
2: Smokes he
1: cries, don't wipe his eyes. Take the wine from
2: the swine and remind them of his crimes. Oh, in another world. Yeah, you can wear a dress. Oh in another world. Yeah, you can wear a dress. I think I can honestly say I haven't heard that one before. It was fine. I don't think I need to hear it again. I like Kirstie McCall, not because of that Pogue song, but because of the song that she wrote and recorded that was later a hit for Tracy Ullman, They Don't Know. I love that song. Me too.
0: Yes, But
2: that song didn't do it for me. I couldn't really make her out too well anyway, but uh, is it about like a transvestite or a transsexual or something?
1: That's how I took it, Ellen, that it was like a, a more modern liberal attitude towards Gender presentation.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, I looked at the lyrics, that's so not super clear to me, but I think it's fair enough.
2: <laughs> I guess the same as the Pogues, like, I just don't vibe with that sort of Irish traditional goes rock sound. <laughs>
0: You're not a Pogues fan?
2: No, sorry. If you're a huge Pogues fan.
0: Get out of here. You're off the show. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I have a lot of friends who are huge Pogues fans, but if I never have to hear a fairy tale of New York ever again, I'm okay with that. Sorry, Kirstie. RIP.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I like that particular song, but I feel you for sure. Like maybe in a pub in Ireland or whatever I could be down with that kind of thing and that kind of vibe. But it's not what I'm looking for in a pop song. But I did like the harmonies on the chorus where I could hear Christy McCall somewhat and I thought that was like effective, and it got me out of the like a, almost a cliche Irish jig vibe. Again, not knowing anything about Irish jigs, but like that's the aesthetic that that hit me. But then I was appreciating as well that they were going between I think um, five four and six four with uh, their time signature, so that was kind of interesting. I think between the verses and the choruses, and I did like the more modern, liberated uh, gender sentiment, you know. In another world, he could wear a dress. Like, there's a political element to it that we don't often hear in songs today, and that's a shame, you know?
0: Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our fourth and final band. We're going to be talking about My Bloody Valentine. This is an Irish-English band formed in 1983, and they finalized their lineup in 1987 they're considered pioneers of the shoegaze genre
1: yeah well i think you're quite right they pioneered it the sound of shoegaze before it had that name it was really my bloody valentine and cocteau twins that i associate with creating the, the foundation of shoegaze music so essentially they're pop songs that are incredibly produced and they go for this ethereal sound in a bunch of different ways whether it's the instrumentation or the production of the vocals, famously on, on Loveless, supposedly, you know, they recorded 16 takes of the lead singer's lyrics, and that's why you can't understand any, any of the words. But at the same time, I would suggest that it's the way that they sing it and the way that the melodies were written that contribute to this ethereal sense. But this is a great example of, I think, the like heaviness of What shoegaze music can be there's no reverb on any of this stuff it's very dry it's very stark in some ways i think the the formula is kind of like this heavy band and then this like super dreamy vocals but um it very much relates i think to me what was going on in in america and um alternative rock and the hard rock scene it shouldn't be forgotten that my bloody valentine is very influenced by dinosaur jr You can hear a lot of those kinds of chords and the possibilities that My Bloody Valentine then embraces. Yeah.
0: I think a lot's been said about the recording of this album. It's one of those things where the band went into the studio and supposedly spent like a quarter of a million pounds in six months. And I've heard that they bankrupted or almost bankrupted their record label, although I've also heard that's not true. But um at least a little bit of the appeal for some people with this band is the idea of Kevin Shields as like a tortured genius, sort of along the lines of Brian Wilson, where he's got this vision in his head and he needs to work on it for an epic amount of time. But why don't we just listen to the track and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Here it is, Only Shallow.
2: It's funny, My Bloody Valentine is one of those bands that I heard of them peripherally at the time, but didn't really jump on that train. And by the time I did give them a listen, I feel like I had sort of missed the boat. I don't know if you've ever had bands like that you can recognize that they're good, and that you may have been into them if you had heard it at the right moment in your development. But... I didn't and so I haven't ever really connected with them despite now having many really good friends who are super into them. I can appreciate it but it just kind of washes over me.
1: Yeah, I can relate very much to, to Ellen, where you know sometimes you you don't get a band at the time, and
2: but it's it's also
1: one of those bands where it's not about the band; it's it's kind of like what the band is doing in the studio, kind of like to a, a certain degree, Sergeant Pepper's or something, where you're marveling at what the speakers are able to do, and it's all about the production because there's never been a band that did anything who could even come close to that My Bloody Valentine sound, and I I think they always miss it because they don't really understand that Kevin Shields wrote really good melodies. That was the key to why they were so cool.
0: I like Only Shallow a lot. It might be my favorite song on the album, and I think it just kicks things off really, really well, the way the drums come in. That guitar sound, whatever it is, it it's always to me sounded like a robotic dinosaur, some kind of mechanical humpback whale, which I always thought was really cool. But I do have a very short story. I was in a I was in a bar one time and they put this song on and a guy just, uh, I saw him stop dead in his tracks when the song started up and he got really <laughs> excited and said like, what is this song? He's like talking to his buddies and like trying to figure out what it was. Like it hit him that hard. And he needed to know what he was listening to. And I, there's not too many songs I can think of that I've actually seen people react that way before.
1: Wow, cool.
0: After this album, My Bloody Valentine sort of disappeared, but eventually they reemerged and finally put out a follow up album in 2013, I wanna say. Did either of you manage to catch that
1: album? I did. What'd you think? I was incredibly disappointed. Yeah. It sounded like throw off tracks. And I think Mm -hmm. in the the way in which... Kevin, in some ways, maybe thought that it was the production that everybody liked, but it was actually the songwriting that everybody liked. And that cool production on top of great songwriting was the key to to making uh, Loveless and Isn't Anything So Interesting. And I just thought it was a, re- a really cynical uh, money-making ploy. I thought it was a garbage record. I hated it. Wow. I've been really disappointed with Kevin Shields because... That guy was an incredibly talented individual who had an incredible band and he just didn't do anything with it. It's a damn shame and it's incredibly disappointing, you know, for anybody who is really a My Bloody Valentine fan. It's like I would prefer to not have the myth and to have just a body of work from this genius. So Ellen probably heard me say that before. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't know if I have, but I appreciate your passion, Dusty.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting when I was reading an all-music review of Rocket Ship's first album is that they described it as not sounding anything like My Bloody Valentine, but still evoking the same feelings or the same sorts of feelings. Is that something you were going for? And if so, like, how do you achieve that?
1: Gosh, yeah. Well, it wasn't anything I was going for. Tiger Trap hit the scene in Sacramento, and I love that bare bones pop singing. But, you know, Rose's songs are very melancholy, and I love that mixture of a kind of an upbeat song that's melancholy. I think my Bloody Valentine has that. I think Cocktail Twins have it. I think a lot of the, the new wave bands have a darkness to them, but then it's in this pop form. So I think when I started Rocket Ship, What I had kind of done was go back to the pre-Isn't-Anything-My-Bloody-Valentine was listening to that Sunny Sunday Smile kind of stuff before they started to use heavy distortion and was listening to Felt and Unrest was a band that was around at the time that was really important at the time. I think people had kind of forgotten them. But I suppose I still had that cure in me. I still had the smiths in me. I think at that time I was able to really take a lot of those influences that I was really into and incorporate them into the sound, but eschewing the cliches of like uh, my bloody valentine at the time that is I, I didn't just emulate that sound anymore you know maybe I was doing that kind of chord progression but it just wasn't distorted and I wasn't like bending the chords and you know bearing the vocals and that kind of thing it was just like a progression from this thing that I really loved about what they were doing so I can hear why it could evoke some of the emotions one hears with my bloody valentine but at the same time how it departs from it
0: yeah all right You know, before we go, is there anywhere that we should direct listeners if they want to hear some of your music?
1: All of our stuff is is on Bandcamp, obviously. And then uh, Rocketship Music is another great way to to listen to this stuff. And then we have a Patreon page, too. So that's patreon.com slash Rocketship. And on there, we have all kinds of cool stuff that people can get that you can't get elsewhere. Pins and flexi discs and um, other memorabilia. Okay,
0: and you know I I know I've been talking a lot about early rocket ship stuff, but um, I really really do like the album from 2019 a lot. And um, Ellen, I think you did really good work on there too, and it it, it sounds great. Um, thank you. It's, it's a really cool album. Um, Thanks. Babe. Yeah, so I guess I guess that's it. Thank thank you too so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks
1: for inviting us, Will.
0: Yeah, of course. If anybody wants to get in contact with me, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time in March of 1992.
1: Bye-bye. Thanks, Will.